This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Being in a pandemic, if you could be anywhere on this planet, maybe a desert island would work, but at the same time, I don't know. Desert islands are, are tough. It's hard to live there. You've got to find food without making use of a store you can't look at tom hanks and castaway and say well it, you know it was easy you just you you take a skate that comes in from the luggage from the plane crash and and you jam it into a coconut and you're you're set and you easily create a spear and learn how to spearfish it happens all the time wilson but that's not the way life works you don't necessarily want to be on, on a deserted island. You're probably going to have a low risk of contracting COVID-19, but you'd have so many other challenges, you might want to trade that low risk for the mainland. So where should you be? Well, our next guest pointed to Canada about six months ago and said, this isn't a bad place to be. Please welcome Dr. Eleanor Fish back to London Live. Dr. Fish is a professor in the Department of Immunology and University of Toronto senior scientist at the Toronto General Research Institute. Dr. Fish, thank you so much. How have the last six months been for you? Oh, they've been, you know, I hate to say terrific, but they've been fine. And uh, let me reiterate, Canada best place to be in the world during this pandemic. See, and I was going to ask you that, whether you still <laughs> felt that way. And, and it's amazing to know that you do. What do you think, having now watched how this has played out, what makes Canada a good place to be as opposed to some other countries who some are really struggling with this? Well, you know, I, I, I think we're struggling as well. I mean, it's, it's fairly obvious. Uh, you know, you look across the country, the number of cases are on the increase. So it, it's not as if, you know, we're, there's some sort of utopia here. I think that what is really important for your listeners to appreciate is that all levels of government are listening to um, the infectious disease experts, the medical experts, the experts who know about viruses and who know about immunology and taking their guidance, um, which means that decisions that are being made on how to move forward um, during this pandemic based on the best evidence we have available to us. And that's, I think, certainly our listeners will appreciate is in dramatic contrast um, if we just look to the South. <laughs> Um, so that positions us well and keeps us relatively nimble in terms of how we adjust. I mean, I know in Ontario there's been a hue and cry about the the availability of testing, uh, the fact that we've got only, I would say, only 153 testing centres for some 14.5 million people, which means, you know, each centre can accommodate you know, what, 95,000 uh, people. So it's not great. And the fact that we've got this backlog of tests and the fact that we've got um, uh, appointments only now uh, is not great. But having said that, you know, the federal government is purchasing all kinds of rapid test kits. You know, I can go into some information if you want. Uh, I'd love, the to, love to know all more right, about those because right, we do okay. hear those... 
We hear those yeah. touted, Dr. Fish, the idea of, of rapid tests. It would be great to know more about the efficiency of these or, or what they actually mean, or are they just kind of one of those toys that come from the toy store? No, no, not at all, not at all, Mike. So um, the fed- so I'm on a, a, a federal government task force. So again, the government has set up three different task forces, one for vaccines, one for therapeutics, and one for what we call immunity. And our mandate is to recommend to the government in a very timely manner things they should be doing now, not in six months, but right now to accommodate this pandemic. So let's, let's get back to the uh, rapid test. So Abbott in Germany um, has a test called, you know, it's called PanBio. Um, by the end of the year, the government has procured 8.5 million of these and with an option for a further 12 million in 2021. This is a kit which will allow you to rapidly, you know, within a space of, I think it's about 30 minutes, um, to get a, uh, an answer from um, whether you're COVID positive or negative. Um, there's also a rapid, um, it's completely different. It's sort of a, that one was an antigen, so it's based on bits of the virus um, that are recognized. There's also the traditional testing that we're doing now, which requires you to go to a lab. So you take a sample, whether it's a saliva or a nasal swab, it has to be transported to a lab and then batch tested using um, various uh, genomic technologies. It's called a PCR-based test. Well, there's a company um, in the USA uh, called uh, ID Now, um, which uses that same PCR-based test, but it's on-site. So we've procured 7.9 million of those, and 2.5 million are arriving next week. Hmm. There's something called BC Cube, uh, which is a rapid result in 90 minutes. Um, the government's in negotiation with that company. Uh, there's Cephade's um, uh, got a, a kit which is in less than one hour. That's already been sent to um, remote regions in the north. You know, the numbers are low. So, so there are a number of rapid kits which should relieve the pressure on our testing centers um, that we won't have to appointment only because that really is crazy. The best way to stop transmission in the absence of approved therapeutics is to test, 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 contact trace, and do it knowing that there are not just symptomatic people, but there are asymptomatic people. So you've got to randomly test. You don't just do it those who show up with symptoms or need to have a test because they're going back to work or they're going back to school. You know, that, that's been another incredible burden. It was so much mixed messaging for um, students uh, when the schools reopened. You know, they had to only go for testing around symptoms. That was a mess. So now... There are these decision trees which parents can go and look at and decide whether or not their kid needs to be tested. So that will alleviate a lot of the pressure on these testing centers. So bottom line is we're in a bit of a crunch right now, but hopefully, certainly in Ontario, the government is moving rapidly to deal with this, get rid of the backlog and open up testing centers, not just by appointment, open up testing at pharmacies and bring in these rapid tests. So that's some good news. Like, and the, other good, like the good and news. The, and the other good news is that in the context of therapeutics, you know, we're moving forward really at, at, at quite a good speed. So we heard about 
how President Trump actually was treated with um, experimental therapeutics, okay? So drugs have to, you know, if you have a drug which you think is going to be effective, it has to go through clinical trials. And once it's completed phase one, phase two, and then the final efficacy and dosing trials, phase three trials, it then uh, is evaluated um, for safety, for efficacy, and hopefully approved for that particular indication. Now, the drugs that um, uh, Donald, uh, President Trump had um, weren't yet approved, okay? And yet, based on the preliminary results from phase three trials, they were shown to be very promising. In addition to the drugs he got, there are other medications which are also showing uh, that they look to be extremely promising. So I'm, dare I say, confident that prior to having a vaccine that's widely distributed, we will have in place treatments in our hospitals, maybe even treatments prophylactic, so people who've been exposed to virus but aren't yet positive in the community who might be able to take medications which will prevent them from getting uh, the disease. So things are happening. They're not in the public eye, which is, you know, extremely frustrating. I wish we were a little bit more transparent. Um, but things are happening in the background, and, and Canada is moving um, and listening to the experts on what to do. Dr. Eleanor Fish joining us, professor in the Department of Immunology and University of Toronto Senior Scientist at Toronto General Research Institute. Dr. Fish, as we close out, as far as timelines go, everybody wants a timeline for something that is completely unknown. But as you watch some of these developments take place, is there a way to put things into a broad context, rapid testing? That's kind of right around the corner, or we can almost reach out and touch it. But how about some of the other therapeutics to actually be able to be used in communities, or even that big word, vaccine? Okay, so I think therapeutics, we'll see them in hospitals by the end of the year. We already have dexamethasone um, that's in place for hospitalized severe cases. Others, um, I think, very shortly will be available based on compassionate use, and as soon as the trials are completed, hopefully just approved. In terms of a vaccine, let me look in my crystal ball. Aha! It's telling me that uh, with a bit of luck, by spring next year, if these vaccines that are being tested in you know, thousands, like 30,000 cases right now, uh, minimally, being tested around the globe, if they're effective, you know, we should have them and start being able to distribute them maybe by second quarter of next year, you know, maybe sooner, who knows? So my crystal ball says, you know, it's going to be a tough winter. We're not going to have uh, much joy about lifting of restrictions. But if we're not complacent, we stick to what we've done in the past as Canadians, we'll flatten this new surge that's happening across the country We'll be able to get on with our lives as Canadians, somewhat restricted. Be patient. I'm hoping by summer we're going to be partying at the beach. <laughs> I love it. Okay. Your optimism is really, really a healthy thing to have. And, Dr. Fish, it's it's really nice to hear that things are happening behind the scenes, that maybe they're not being made public every single day because 
maybe there's some unhealthy attributes to that too. But this this has been really nice. Thank you for My providing pleasure. us with this conversation. And please keep safe. You too. Be safe. Bye. That is Dr. Eleanor Fish. In the Department of Immunology at the University of Toronto, also a senior scientist at Toronto General Research Institute. So as Dr. Fish told us when this was beginning, you want a good place to be? Canada's a good place to be. Is it perfect? No, it's not perfect. No place is. Even that desert island, that's that's not a perfect place to be. What if there are jaguars in the forest? What do you do then? How How do you get through that? There are all kinds of things that you could be dealing with on a desert island. So... Let's put that to rest. We're not going to go and live there. And in the meantime, as Dr. Fish says, this this is a good place to be for a lot of reasons, and there is a lot happening behind the scenes. And I think that's what we need to hear, that there is behind-the-scenes work that is leading to progress, that is making the end of the tunnel come a little closer, that maybe we can see a, a little bit of fuzzy light and know that it's out there somewhere. Now let's talk with somebody who must feel like one. Luke Evangelista of the London Knights and now Nashville Predators prospect joins us. Luke, congratulations. Thank you, Stubbsy. Wow. I mean, this is obviously a little bit different. Uh, Had this been the way it was supposed to go, this would have been June. Uh, You would be in Montreal right now, and you'd still be probably celebrating and and feeling happy. But can you take us through what the last couple of months have been like waiting for this particular day? Yeah, I mean, like you said, like our process has been a lot different from prior years, obviously. But you know, getting drafted to the NHL, whether it's in person or, you know, you're watching on TV with, TV with your family, like, it's it's a huge honor either way. So it, it's been a really exciting past 48 hours. At least OHL players kind of get practice at this because the OHL priority selection takes place in a very similar manner where you're watching a screen and you're waiting to see your name come up. How how similar was it to wait to see your name come up this time except you've got the Nashville Predators beside it? Yeah, I mean, it was it was pretty similar. Like, we're same thing, like, in the basement just watching on the TV, but... Um, you know, I, I, I with London, I, I got a call from Rob Simpson before he picked me, so I saw it coming. But with Nashville, like I, it was just out of the blue. Like my family, and I were just speechless. We didn't get any call or any heads up. So, you know, I found out at the same time as everybody else. But it, it was a really cool moment. There's a lot of country music that plays in the London Knights dressing room. Are are you somebody who's okay when there's country music? Because where you're headed, there's a lot of country music. <laughs> you, you know, honestly, I'm glad I went to London because. Uh, before London, I was not a big country guy, but the guys in that locker room changed me a little bit, so they kind of prepped me for uh, for Nashville here. That is good stuff. Luke Evangelista joining us. Luke, what does this moment feel like right now? Uh, I mean, to be honest with you, like it's just like my heart. My heart's been pounding the last last hour, I guess, and you know, I really can't describe what what I'm feeling right now. I mean, just being drafted to in the NHL is a huge honor, but you know to Nashville especially like it's such a great organization great hockey city um you know I I just couldn't be more excited we talked earlier on the show about the way that you approached things coming into the OHL and how you soaked it in how you took every day to learn looking back over the last two years how important do you think that was in you getting to where you are right now 
Yeah, I mean, as you know, it's there's a lot of ups and downs in junior hockey and playing in London, but you know, I wouldn't trade what I've been through for anything. It's you know, it's made me the person, the player I am today, and you know, I preach that to younger guys in London. You know, just trust the process, and um, you know, obviously, London is a great place to play and produces NHL draft picks. But um, yeah, I mean, what I've been through in the last couple of years and what I've learned has really helped me a lot, and it's gotten me to where I am today. Well. Where you are today is continuing a pretty remarkable dream, and we'll see how things unfold in the hockey world in the next little while. But you get to soak up and celebrate a little bit right now. Any big plans? They're kind of restricted due to this pandemic, but anything you plan to do with your family to at least mark the occasion? Yeah, I mean, like you said, like we're kind of on lockdown here a bit, but you know, I'll just take some calls the rest of the day and. Uh, obviously watch the draft too because you got some teammates and friends that um you know i'm looking forward to seeing go here but yeah just spend time with my family and you know just relax now and breathe because it's been a pretty stressful stressful last couple of days but um yeah just enjoy it with my family is your phone still blowing up oh yeah like like it never has before well, enjoy that moment, too, because it'll be the first of uh, a few times that your phone blows up like that. Get ready for more. Luke, congratulations, and good luck with everything, and uh, here's hoping we get to see you skating on a rink very soon. Yeah, definitely. Thanks again, Stubbsy. Okay, we'll talk soon. That's Luke Evangelista, now a Nashville Predators prospect. And if you missed what we were talking about earlier, when he came in at 16, he did just that. He took every day to learn. Nothing was assumed. Nothing was taken for granted. It wasn't, hey, I'm a first-round pick. This is the way it's going to go. And very few players come in and do that anyway. But, I mean, if you think about any kind of status in hockey, if you think, well, I'm a first-round pick, you know, things should be happening. This is the way that things should happen. He didn't do any of that, had none of that, and just took each and every day to learn. And because of that, he is standing where he is right now as a future prospect for the National In our lives, it's easy to say we should strive for perfection. Realizing perfection, that's pretty impossible. In fact, I don't think anybody who's walked the face of the earth has done it yet. However, when we're looking at things going on in this pandemic, if we're close to perfect, if we're very, very good, is that something that we should take and be pleased with? If we look at back to school, we have not seen a case at Beale turn into 20 cases at Beale. We haven't seen a case at Mitchell Hepburn Public School in St. Thomas turn into 20 cases. We do now have a case of COVID-19 that we understand is at Saunders Secondary School. So what do we look at this as being? Do we look at this as being good so far? Do we look at this as being concerning? Joining us right now is the Medical Officer of Health with the Middlesex London Health Unit, Dr. Chris Mackey. Dr. Mackey, thanks for fitting us in this afternoon. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Mike. Let's kind of look at, at that particular question. If you were to kind of evaluate how things have gone for schools, I don't think anybody expected we would have zero cases, but what do you see within the school system in this area so far? What you see is a system that's very safe. Uh, the, the remarkable thing about this story is what's not happening. And as you say, we're not seeing evidence of transmission in schools yet. We're not seeing large numbers of students becoming ill. You know, we've had two students uh, become ill since the start of school. 
there are about 60 to 70,000 students that are in class. That, that's not the ones learning from home, but in class. Uh, and they've been to school, you know, more than 15 days now. That's about a million student days. So we have two, two students positive in a million student days. Uh, so it's, it's a pretty impressively low number and a big credit to all of the uh, teachers, staff, and students at those schools who are doing such a good job to keep each other safe. So what is happening then? Because we'll hear the word protocol used, and obviously there are protocols in place, but what is happening that is preventing one case in a student from turning into 20 cases in a school? So it starts even before the students uh, arrive at school. The classrooms um, have as much as possible within the resources that the schools have have been set up so that there's minimal contact between classes. High school is happening cohorts, so you might you you won't even see the entire class. You'll see your half of the class, and then every other day, uh, you know they they kind of alternate who's attending school. Uh, the screening every day, you know, in uh, the, the parents have to check to make sure their 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 children are well before they go into school for high school and elementary. And, uh, of course, for daycare as well. Uh, that screening is a huge, huge plus. If we're keeping children who are not sick out of school, that's, you know, that's where the majority of those super spreader incidents where one person infects many others uh, can really start to be prevented. Then once you hit the school, uh, you've got distancing as much as possible within the classrooms and elsewhere. You've got uh, all students now wearing masks from grade school all the way through post-secondary. Um, you've got hand washing kind of absolutely everywhere you could look. There's a hand sanitizer. Um, people are keeping their distance. You know, the, the, you've got resets that's planned by in shifts. It's it's really a, a whole reinvention of how school works in order to try to keep students and staff safe. Dr. Chris Mackey joining us. Medical Officer of Health with the Middlesex London Health Unit. Dr. Mackey, in the Saunders case, do we know if the student was at school while symptomatic? The student was uh, at school for a period when uh, that person may have been uh, communicable. They may have been able to to communicate the illness. Um, We don't have any evidence that there has been transmission yet, but of course that's what we're looking closely for. The student is uh, isolated at home. And everyone who has had close contact with that student has been excluded from school. And uh, public health is reaching out to all of them today to make sure that they're isolating safety and can get isolating safely and can get tested if they need it. Now, would that involve a class being told, "Okay, let's let's stay home today"? Does that happen? Yeah, that can happen certainly if you've got a class that is all together uh, on a regular basis. Yeah, that that would be uh, adequate to be considered a close contact. Uh, It also, you know, if the the person has friends outside of the class where, you know, we know that there is close contact, that would be included as well. Sure. Do we know if that's happened in this case? Well, in this case, there are less than 20 close contacts associated with the school. So, uh, again, Saunders is a pretty big school, so vast majority of, of students and teachers have not had contact with this individual. Okay, and I guess uh, as a last question, if we look at case count for today or transmission rate for today, what are you seeing locally? 
We are seeing the number of cases coming in this week higher than uh, over the past few days. The part of the issue seems to be we're catching up with the provincial backlog of tests that have been kind of sitting in fridges waiting to get tested. Uh, so it's helpful to have those numbers come in uh, so we can isolate the cases and hopefully prevent the spread to the next uh, the next cases. Dr. Mackey, thanks for the time today. We'll be listening tomorrow for the next media briefing, and we'll see what happens between now and then. Much appreciated. Thank you, Mike. That is Dr. Chris Mackey, Medical Officer of Health with the Middlesex London Health Unit. Let's take a break. We're going to check in on the Thanksgiving food drive, and we're going to do that in about 10 minutes. We'll also check in on what was said provincially today, but as Dr. Chris Mackey pointed out, we are seeing higher case counts than maybe we had seen for a couple of days. How much of that goes back to the backlog that we have had in provincial testing? That's that's one of those things that is an imperfect science right now, and there are still a lot of calls saying, come on, how did the Ontario government not see something like this coming? Why are we throwing money at stuff now in October when the money should have been put there in August? And that's a legitimate question. It really is. That is a legitimate question, and you would hate to think that any members of any government will look back and go, boy, if only we had... If only we had done it this way. And I wondered that about education. I wondered if right now, in the first couple of weeks of October, if Education Minister Stephen Lecce would be saying that. And things are are far from perfect. I mean, we've got some real issues in some schools in Toronto. We've had issues in schools in Ottawa. So nothing is perfect. But as far as widespread scale, we're not looking at this as being a super spreader event on a weekly basis at every single school that has opened and has students inside it. We're not seeing that. And so we probably have to look at that side of the coin to be completely fair. And Dr. Mackey outlined it. We've had essentially a million school days and two positive cases in London and then one in St. Thomas. But a million school days, if you add up every school day that a student has had, that's that's good. How how do you get better than that? You know, and dumb and dumber, Jim Carrey says, so like what, one in a million? We're, we're pretty close to that. And that at least is, again, a pat on the back to what is going on with the London District Catholic School Board and the Thames Valley District School Board. They said protocols. We said hope. They said we're going to do what we need to do. We said hope. And everything together seems to be resulting in Very few cases at this point. Grab me some wood to knock on. Let's hope it stays that way. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.